and welcome back to another episode of the Prime Podcast. On today's episode, we have another special guest, and I'm really excited to hang out, uh, get an opportunity to hang out with this young man again. We have another former athlete of mine, Mark Goldman. So a little different than Imani Oliver, who we had a couple of weeks ago. It's really cool to have these athletes come back, visit, chat, and do some of the things that they are doing currently in their life. Um, well after the time that we've spent together when I coached them in their high school years and a little bit beyond. It's really one of the things that I really enjoy about coaching in general, especially young athletes at the high school level, is that you get to see them develop as people. And we talked about it with Amani and, and we talked about it here with Mark a little bit, how you don't really know the effect or impact you have on somebody until years later when they come back and visit or years later when you see them down the road it being professionals going into their workforce going into the things that they love the most so i hope you enjoy we sat down with mark for about an hour he came up to visit hung out he usually does it about once a year hangs out with the family he cooked us some great food and enjoy and hopefully this helps you find your prime later Yeah. You ready? <laughs> hey. Let's go. Back. I'm at my. I'm at my prime. Whoa. Uh. Have I gone too far? Do you detect something different? If you look inside my head. Would you say something's missing? If you could give all your riches just to say the word, would you risk it? These politicians so old can't tell if they're dead. And welcome back to another episode of the Prime Podcast. I think we're at like episode 36. We're almost at a full year of content. That's pretty wild to think about since when we started it way back. We weren't sure how we were going to do this, but here we are. Episode 36, 37, 38, something like that. Might be 37. 37. And today we have another guest. That was Tori. If you guys don't know. <laughs> Hello. Chiming in. Tori's usually here. I think there's only been one podcast where she's missed, I think. Pretty much. Pretty much. And we have another special guest today. Uh, so a, a few weeks ago, we had a... Was it a few weeks ago? Yeah. A former athlete of mine. Or was that last week? That was No, that was two weeks ago. Yeah. Two weeks ago, we had one of my former track and field athletes, Imani Oliver who was a high-level triple jumper, still competing in a professional level. And today, we have another former athlete of mine, Mark Goldman, who played football as an offensive lineman at the same high school as Imani. A little bit younger, I believe, right? Yeah. A little bit younger. And we're going to talk about his journey a little bit, what he ended up doing, and what he's still pursuing to this day. And it'll be a really kind of... Another trip down memory lane for, for me and for you guys to see another perspective of kind of where I come from in terms of my coaching background, where I coached Mark both in football and track and field in some regard, and kind of this journey throughout. So one of the things that I've been talking about in my newsletter, if you had to, on the newsletter list, you should probably get on it. Tori's too. Tori's is different though. And you never know when you're going to get one. No, <laughs> probably not this week at all. Probably not this week at all. But... On the newsletter, I've been talking a lot about leadership culture and kind of the things that elicit and Mark and I have had that we had a big conversation about this yesterday, culture and building relationships with athletes and things like that. And Mark, over the last, I don't know, probably the last three or four years, he, since we've moved out of 
New York City has made a point to come up for at least one weekend per year. I think in most of the COVID last year, I kind of didn't, I don't think he came up, but most years he tries to come up for a couple of days to visit and hang out with the family. This morning he cooked us a, a pretty outstanding breakfast of like a, what was it? Oh, uh, eggs Benedict, right? And all that different stuff. And then when I get in the car this morning to come over to the gym, he's listening to, uh, Chef Ramsey talk about how to make eggs Benedict his spot. <laughs> but I have Mark Goldman here and again uh, we'll we'll talk about some of the things so Mark um, played played high school football uh, went to Harvard uh, played football and now he's at Columbia University as a PhD student and then we're gonna we're gonna trace it back to kind of football in general and what got you into football because that's kind of going to be the one of the overarching themes through some of this or those early years so what was the kind of first welcome to the show and second (laughs) what got you into football initially Uh, if you see him I mean you kind of understand why maybe he wanted to play football what do you like six four six five six four and three fourths six four and three quarters (laughs) and he's a little lean right now what do you weigh right now uh 235 235 when he was playing he might have been like 275 in high school, high school, three hundred and three hundred in college. So he's he's leaned out quite a bit since those days. So you can see if you saw him standing in front of you, like as he was cooking this morning, he cut his finger, and uh, Abigail, my four year old, comes over. She's like, I think Mark cut his finger. I said, Did he cry? And she's like, No, he didn't cry. He's big. <laughs> I was like, Big people don't cry. I'm pretty sure Mark cries. And she's like, No, only little people cry. It was kind of funny. So, Mark, again, welcome to the show. And, like, take us take us back to the early days of, of little Mark uh, aspiring to be a football player. Sure, sure. So, first, I didn't expect to be here, but, but thank you for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so my first introduction to football was actually just walking by a football field. Uh, I saw a kid jogging around. So, I have a family of immigrants. We, we came from Ukraine, and they didn't really know about American football. Um, but weirdly, I, I got into baseball at a young age, and they really didn't like that. It was a boring sport for them. So they were looking um, to put me in, into what they would call a real sport. And I saw this one kid jogging around a football field. And I was a chubby kid back then, too. And I was thinking, wow, I don't think I could ever jog around a football field. You know, I would I would love to try that out. So I joined my in seventh grade about my, like, regular program, the little league program that was there. Um, and it was hard. I didn't know anyone. It was a new sport for me and I was terrible at it. Right. So it was definitely a deep uh, learning curve for me, but it, I put in work that was new for me and, and I liked the grind and, you know, it, it just kind of felt natural to continue from there. I see where I so see where I could take it. So in seventh grade, you joined like a pop Warner league. Yeah. Kings Bay oh, it's okay. a local Brooklyn league. That's where I met Brandon. Um, another high school teammate that, yep. that you ended up coaching. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with, with New York city sports, I think I talked about this a little bit with Amani but there are no middle school sports, so to speak, in, in New York City public schools. So if you want to play a sport uh, and you're in the middle school age range, like Mark was saying, seventh, eighth grade, like upstate New York, we have all these middle school kind of quote unquote modified sports. Then you have to play a club organization like a Pop Warner, like an AAU basketball and so on and so forth. So you're not really have those same opportunities um, unless you, you know, see some kid run, running around a track or doing some things and you're like, oh, I want to try that. And then you can kind of sign up and, and do those sorts of things. So then what, what, what happens after you, your initial in, into football is then it, the next transition get into Midwood? Is that kind of the next? That's, that's the next piece. So like I said, Brandon was going into Midwood and, you know, I had a choice between a couple high schools and I chose that school because it had a football team. It just felt natural to continue with it. 
I went in, I was big, they liked me, I started and all that. But really my, my challenge came um, when we got a new coaching staff, you know, junior, senior year. That's really when I started taking it seriously, started thinking about college ball because we had to, you know, our workouts were such that if you didn't like football or if you didn't like working and challenging yourself, that that's not something you were going to do. That's not something. So your first two years you had a different coaching staff? A hundred percent. You know, some coaches that didn't take it seriously, they had some wins, but they didn't really care about us as players. It was more about just like a hobby for them. Or at least that's what it seemed like. And then junior year, that's when yeah. I became one of the coaches. Yeah, that's right. Well, so I'll, I'll explain the scenario. So junior year, we had some tough coaches ended up, you ended up working with right. in, in Coach Odita and Coach Jones. And as you know, I wasn't very good junior year. I slacked off. Honestly, I didn't really come to practice that much either. I didn't win any awards at the end of the year, anything like that. But so at the end of my junior year, that's when I joined the track team. And that's when, where I met you. Right. And as you know, I credit you for all my athletic success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's when I remember my first interaction with you was me missing some practice and then you seeing me and confronting me about it. And, you know, I, I always had people... I guess, confront me about it, but not in a way where they cared. It was just more of a, they wanted to be mad, you know, like they wanted to yell at me. You were like, I want you to get better and you're not here. So why aren't you here? And, you know, I gave a, a BS reason, but you made me feel bad. You really did before I didn't really care. <laughs> uh, how, how do I make you feel bad? How, how my approach or? Uh, well, no, like in, in a positive way, in a way oh, that would okay. change. Yeah. Yeah. Like you took me to the, to the, <laughs> To the head coach of the track team. And you were like, you know, he's, he's been missing practice. You know, this is your star shot putter or whatever. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and so from then on, I came to practice every day, leaned out. Even even the tough days where I had to throw in the snow by myself um, when I was doing shot put in discus. But that, that year, I won junior MVP or whatever for the track team because mm -hmm. I did, you know, crazy at, um, at City compared to what I did the year before. Right. Um, and that was all all thanks to you. And that, that was the real beginning of my athletic journey. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I And then that's when I was begging you to uh, join the football team. You remember that? You were begging me to join a football team? Yeah. As in, as a coach. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Cause we were at the time we were coaching the JV that your junior year or was I, you weren't coaching anyone. You weren't coaching anyone junior year. You weren't on the team yet. It was coach Jones, coach Odita, but you weren't there. That's why no one was holding me accountable. Then I joined track team. And then you joined that summer going into my senior year. So I, I didn't coach the coach, coach Odita and coach Jones coach the varsity that year? Yeah, they did. Yep. One year. I didn't. Where was I? You just took it off. I think you just took took a semester off or something. I don't know if I ever took one year. Maybe was I at Fort Hamilton that year? No, definitely not. You were you were in the school and I kept remember, you don't remember these? I, I kept begging you to join. I was like, I actually kept begging you to come see at least three games. That's what I kept begging you to do. I see. I don't. I don't remember not. I don't remember taking a year off from coaching football entirely. So I'm trying to figure out what I was doing at. Oh, I was coaching cross country. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I do you, remember that. Yeah, I wonder why. I got. I got to think back now. Why? <laughs> why I took that year off, and see. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, but that turned around. I mean, um, it felt different even going into it, and I ended up winning the MVP of our team this that year and getting all these offers the junior year. Obviously, I didn't have any coming out, which is weird. Usually, junior year is when the football kids start getting their offers. For sure, for sure, football is a little bit different because it's a it's a fall sport, so sometimes you can get those a little later. And then I think also, you know, the, 
like we talked about your size, it, you have, you've always been a, a, you always been able to move well for being a bigger kid. And, uh, I think that's one thing that people really like when they see pe- the size and they feel like they can teach you everything else. So obviously we talked about it before in the, in the pre-roll a little bit that you went to Harvard. So obviously you have, you had exceptional grades. Mm-hmm. So the choices for going to school were kind of unlimited because if you have really good grades and you have some athletic potential, then the possibilities for you going to pretty much any school you want are pretty, they're open. So what was the, the final decision? Cause I think it was down to Cornell and, and Harvard, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a couple schools off. But those were like your last two choices, right? Those you were, were like last your two. last two. You were try, decided, trying to decide against. Well, can I riff a, a yeah, little bit on, on go for football? It. Yeah. So one thing, so I, I still go back to, to Midwood High School and, um, you know, still try to talk to football players every once in a while because I think a lot of kids, uh, and if, if you're a kid, you know, trying to go to college football, a lot of kids don't realize that it's not just about getting there. After that, that's when the work starts, right? Like you did all this work up in high school to get a to get an offer letter, but that doesn't mean you're done now, right? What it means is now you're waking up at 5 a.m. every day, and if you don't get to to practice on time, you got a punishment workout. Uh, if you don't, you know, finish all your classes, you got to take a year off from school. Uh, that's when the grind starts, right? That's when all the pressure is on you, and that's something I overlooked. You know, it was blind. Um, to what, what happens after I get all these offers. So, but yeah, in that period, I was still wondering like, oh, what's the best school for me? You know, trying to cultivate my earnings, I guess, of, of um, all the work I put in in high school. Came down to Harvard and Cornell, and I just talked to the coaches, and they said, no matter how much you like Cornell, after your visit, you kind of can't, and you didn't say this, but Coach Jones and Coach Adida did, no matter how much you like, you like Cornell, the name Harvard means too much to not go there. And then you obviously said the opposite. I don't think we had this conversation because I just got mad at you and we didn't talk for a month <laughs> or something like because that. Because I said the opposite? Well, I was just, I was just, I came into your office and I said, you know, I chose Harvard and you, and you just gave me this disappointed look and I was like, all right, whatever, this guy. <laughs> well, I think that, I think part of it, they, all the Ivy Leagues obviously hold their own, their own weight in terms of what they, what they stand for. And I think, and I just had this conversation with one of my athletes who I was telling you about. She was like, I really want to go D1. And I was like, yeah, but having a, a, a eh, maybe a subpar experience at a D1 school versus an exceptional experience at a Division three school, like what would you rather have? Like a subpar experience because you have to go D1, quote unquote D1, right? Or like a great experience at a pretty good D3 school who's really good in their sport and also has all the academic things that you want to do. I, I would personally choose because I've know and I've seen athletes go through different things and I've been through things myself that having an expe- exceptional college experience at a division three school long term is going to carry more weight than just picking a school because you have to go D1 or you have to do something because of the wrong reasons. When you say subpar, do you mean on the team subpar, like whether you start or not? or Both. Like overall everything. Mm-hmm. So you might go to a D1 school that... Maybe the campus life isn't like what you expected. Maybe your team experience, you go to a, a toxic culture on your team. Maybe you don't get as much playing time. You don't enjoy the sport as much. And then maybe you're, they don't have the exact major you want. So you're kind of like mixing and matching courses to try to make up a major. And, you know, so there's like all these different things that can factor into that experience. And then maybe you just don't get along with the people or it's far from home. You know, there's like so many variables that go into it. 
And I think that people sometimes overlook, you know, we're talking, we're, we're talking Ivy league to Ivy league, but I think in general, people often overlook and they, they get this idea that they have to go D one and that like a D three school, even though some D three schools are super high level, you know, whether it's football, soccer, track and field, whatever that might be, they have those high level schools that are great academic. And then they have great campus life. They have great, you know, programs that you can be involved in. And I just think that people need to do their, their research because whether or not what, what the decision you make, it can carry a whole lot of weight for the rest of your life. And the experiences you make are going to carry into the rest of your life. And then having those experiences are helpful. And like you said, you're going to have to grind more. I mean, if you, regardless of the type of program you go to, whether it's a D1 or a D3 program, the work never stops. Yes. Maybe if you're, if you're on scholarship, maybe your workload is a little bit more because they quote unquote, like kind of own you because they, they, you signed like a contract with them essentially. But if you're at a high level D3 program, you're putting in the work too. So it doesn't really, you know, I went to a, a pretty high level division three football program and we worked a lot. Like we, we grinded. I mean, we were at my junior year, we were two games away from a national championship, you know? So it's not like we were just hanging out, but I do know that there are some D three programs that are, they don't work hard and they don't do that. And I'm sure there's still division one programs that don't go hard and don't do certain things. So I think just finding the proper environment for you is the most important thing versus just picking things over a name or picking things over a division or picking things over, you know, so on and so forth. So just taking that to take into consideration all the variables. Yeah. And I noticed, I don't know if this is the same everywhere, but in New York city, they had this stigma about having to go D one. And I just never understood that. You know, I looked at D three schools. It just happened to be that I didn't go to one. But um, yeah, no, I think the stigma is, is pretty everywhere. And yeah. I think the other part of it is like, we kind of talked about yesterday with the NFL. And I think, you were talking about how you played with some guys who were in the NFL or were in the NFL and how the differences between some of like maybe their skill levels or their work ethics weren't much different than maybe what you compare yourself. But on the flip side, I think in a high school experience, especially like a football or a basketball. So let's say the differences between like a high level D one athlete and a high school field is dramatically different Definitely. than a just Joe Schmo type guy. Like and we've seen some high level D one athletes you've played against and they're just different. Uh, they, especially like we talked about the skill guys, right? The skill guys are way different. And I think just going into it, th like you have to have the, I think you have to have the proper perspective on what it looks like to be a division one athlete. And I think that's what people don't realize that if you're a running back and you're a division one athlete, you're score, you're like, you're unstoppable, mm -hmm. right? If you're a receiver, nobody can guard you. You're catching everything. And you're doing kick returns too. And you're scoring a touchdown every time you touch the ball, you know? So I think these, these things that people are like, Oh, I'm going to go D one. I'm going to go D one. Yes. You can go to like a low level D one, but is that experience going to, that's, and that's what I'm talking about is yeah, I can pick a D one school to go to and then have a crappy experience and not have fun. Or I can go to a D three school, have a great football experience. And just because you're at a D one school doesn't mean you have a great D, a great coach. We talked about this with strength coaches earlier too. Mm -hmm. Just because you're at a big program doesn't mean your, your strength coach is good. Doesn't mean your football coach is good. Doesn't mean that your teachers are good. You know, so there's all these different variables that go into it that I think like comparing this stigma of D1, you know, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. If you play a college sport, regardless of what level it at, you're, you're, you're in a minority of people in the world. That's the other thing you were saying that those people hop out at you, right? And those people are the ones that 
should be considering, okay, I have to go to a good D1. But if you're not going to the league, you know, it there is kind of, it's kind of obvious in high school, I think. Um, who's going to go to the league or who's going to? Who's not going to go to oh, the league. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah, who's not going to go. And when you're in that category, it's like there really is no difference between D3, D2, and, and D1 right. at that point. You know, like maybe get your money at D1 if you can, if that if that's something um, that's important to you. But other than that, just choose by program yeah. um, 100%. I don't think I made the wrong choice necessarily, you know. No, and I think all of our experiences lead us to where we are right now. So if I had never went to Ithaca College, even though I'm still paying for student loans (laughs) in some regard, I wouldn't have, I would have never coached you. We wouldn't have you having this conversation. I wouldn't be where I am. So if I were to be like, say I went to Cortland, which is a comparable school, has a comparable major, has comparable football, all that stuff, but it's a state school. The coach that he he talked about, who was the head football coach, and who kind of got me into his school, and the general he went to he, and he played football late in life at the college that I went to. So that's how I met him, um, because he graduated I think a year or two before me. And when I was moving down to New York City, I reached out to our head football coach at Ithaca College and I was like, "Hey, which of our guys that you know of are coaching in New York City?" And he gave me two. Uh, There's a guy LJ who I actually played with, who's a D lineman also. He coached at Adams in Queens. He still does, I think. And then Coach Odita, Anthony Odita. So he was at Midwood, which, so it was in Brooklyn. We reached out. We, we kind of connected early. And then I went and started coaching at that school. And that's how that progression of things start, started. But it was because of my college experience that allowed me to get to that point. So if I never went to that college, you know, my trajectory would have been very different. And the, the next progression of things would have been very different. Yeah. So, and, and how did you pick Ithaca? How did I pick Ithaca? I went on a bunch of visits. I visited Springfield College. I visited Brockport, Ithaca, Cortland, Utica. I'm trying to think if there's another one. So one in Albany. Oh, I was looking at a couple in Albany. Like, uh, they didn't have my major. So it was just it was a college, it was experiences like going on visits. So I went on a couple overnight visits. Like one kid who I played high school football was at Springfield. So I visited with him. And, you know, when you go on a college visit, they you stay overnight, you meet everything with the team, you go on, like, party, nightlife type thing, and then you stay over, and then you do all the, the football type stuff. And Ithaca just felt right. You know, I didn't really consider money, didn't consider any of the other things that went into it. I went, I only chose schools that had the major, and they were all, like, kind of athletic type schools. So they all had athletic training, physical therapy, physical education. I was looking at a major, and kind of just, like, whatever, it just – Stepping on campus and everything about Ithaca just felt right, like in my soul, I guess. I don't know how else to say it, but like I just knew after all the visits I went to that that was the one that I really wanted to go to. And like you, I I did well in school, so I could have went to any, like I didn't have that barrier to be like, oh, I can only go to to this school because my grades are bad, you know, so that limits you. So like the, the more you can have your grades in order and have some athletic potential, then it opens the doors and it gives you like kind of like a, you get to choose, right? You, you get to choose like Mark got to choose whatever school he wanted to go to. So when you have that option and not being limited or stymied by some other factor that you have, then, you know, your opportunities are endless. And then it's just you making the choice that feels the best. This happened on a recruiting visit to Harvard. Cause I was also trying to figure out um, yeah. where I wanted to go between there, Cornell and other schools at that time. And there was a panel and I think it's really good to, to ask, 
questions at those panels just to really get a sense of. There's a panel of football kids? Panel of football kids. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. They had that at pretty much every school, but no one really asked them hard questions. Everyone's yeah. like, um, you know, what what do you guys wear on game day? Like, how many bands do you get? Like, weird stuff like that. Really? People ask those questions? Yeah, yeah. Those are such stupid questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but. Um, how high are your socks? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but so I would, I, I tried to ask questions. This is what I tell every football kid when we go on recruiting visits too. Um, ask them questions that will try to get them thinking and trying to get them some say to say something negative about the program. Like what's your least favorite thing mm -hmm. or why would you choose a different school versus this school? Something like that. And I asked them what made this school different. I, I mean, I asked them a bunch of questions and the captain there said, when I was going on visits to other schools, I realized that I wanted to be friends with all these guys. But when I came here, I realized I wanted to be like the guys in this program. You know, I wanted to be the the juniors and seniors, the leaders of this program. Uh, and that really stuck with me. You know, I, I was friendly, obviously, with everyone who went uh, on the visits and everyone who at the schools and the coaches, they were cool. But when I went to Harvard, I just saw that the people were who I wanted to be when I grew up. And that's what made the difference. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, way to look at it instead of like saying like, Oh, I just want to be friends with those people. I want to be those people. Exactly. Like in three years, I want to be that person. Yeah. 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 That's a very, that's a very, you know, like we talked about yesterday about, you know, we talked about the culture thing mm -hmm. instead of like being the best on the team, but being the best for the team. Like that's kind of like, I don't want to just be the, be, be hanging out with these guys. I want to be one of those guys. So it's a, that's a kind of like, it's a cool way to look at it. So Harvard, how did your Harvard experience go? You chose Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. We just went through how we got there, what we did, what were the choices, and then what was your experience like? It was... Uh, was it everything you expected? <laughs> it was... Well, so it was harder. Then that's why I tell people, don't forget, you still have to work when you get there. For sure. And that that's something I forgot. <laughs> so when I got there, you know, going into it, I was having nightmares about, man, what if I'm not good enough? Like literal, like I go to sleep, like football, you're not good enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what what if I go to sleep, wake up, and it, and it just I'm not good. And right. They were wrong, but you know, getting on campus and getting into the groove of things, going from playing the All City game, being a captain there, and being the the MOP on our team MVP, um, I thought, how good are these guys really? And then I got on the field with them, and I sat for a year and a half basically, and it got really frustrating. School was tough too, you know, long hours, and it's all all on a curve. So you're in school with the smartest kids and then you're going to practice for six hours a day or whatever, you know, film and lifting and right. regular practice. So it was tough. And the first two years I was really down on myself. I had a lot of anxiety, you know, waking up in the morning and going to practice and all that. Luckily I had some mentors on the team that, that noticed and, you know, took me aside and, and had a couple talks with me, but it was, it was definitely tough. And you got to really look for your school's resources at that point. That's kind of what I did, you know, trying to go to um, whether it's the, the therapists or the kids that are older than you that have been through the experience that you're going through now. I just thought coming out of a Brooklyn public school, that's not what I was ready for. I wasn't ready for being an elite student and, you know, a, a top-notch athlete all in the first semester. You didn't feel like you were prepared for or you just didn't feel like the – just the, your, your mindset wasn't right for that. My mindset. Yeah. My mindset definitely wasn't right. You know, it was a culture shock. It was not, you know, I was living by myself for the first time. It's just a lot of things at once, you know, right. and when, when it's just not something you're expecting, it can overwhelm you for sure pretty easily. But that's something I learned from. And that's something when I got older and got into my junior, senior year and felt more comfortable, particularly my senior year, that's 
when I tried to mentor the younger kids who I thought were probably going through what, what we Something all similar. Yeah, exactly. So your first year and a half, you so said you struggled. And then after that, junior, senior year turned out better. Um, well, Academically playing wise. I Junior year, I actually had to take a, a semester off. Um, what happened at that point was, you know, I broke my, I broke my leg uh, during a game and we didn't realize it was broken. Um, and I had to play through it for a majority of the season actually. And at that point I kind of lost my will to go to class and, and all that. And that was, I think the low point, that was my junior season. And that really got, got the best of me, I think. And I had to take a semester off and regroup because I just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. You know, cause when you break your leg and you're limping, it wasn't like, Oh, how can we get you to be better? It's why are you limping? Like you're making us look bad. Stop limping or, or we'll take you off the field. Right. So yeah, that, that all got to me. I took a semester off and then senior year, I felt like wise grandmaster going back to it. Like I've been through it already. You know, I know what it's about. I know it's a business. I know no one cares what you're going through internally, you know, in terms of professors and coaches at least, and at least on my team. So that's, I just entered with a different mindset and that was way, way better for me. Um, now <laughs> I'm going to come back. So you felt that nobody cared about whatever. Now, did that contribute to a different team culture? Was the, the culture of the team a little bit negative? Or was there, because obviously if you felt that, other players probably felt the same as well. And if they felt like maybe the, the adults in that position didn't really care for you as much, then it turns into maybe resentment, it turns into clicks, it turns into different things. Now, did you Did you notice some of that on your team? You know, it's tough because I don't have a lot to compare it to. I guess I noticed clicks in the sense that we're all different position groups. Right. So that seems more normal in football. I don't know what your experience was. Was the linebacker group a click compared to the O-line group compared to the uh, D-line group? Not, not so much. I feel like the guys who, there were like little groups of people, but I feel like they were mixed. They were mixed positions. Mm. Like most of the guys I hung out with. I actually didn't hang out with any football guys, but I think like the, like the, a lot of the linebackers hung out with different positions. And like, I know I can think of my, um, my neighbors, my freshman year were two sophomores and one was a running back. One was a linebacker. Mm, okay. So, so there was a lot of like mixed position friendships, I think. Gotcha. And they used to actually start fights on purpose in practice. <laughs> yeah. Just cause they were being rowdy or. Uh, because like if practice was down, oh, you know, they would uh, like, get it going and they could because they were both starters you know so they would both like fake fight <laughs> that's hilarious and start fights on purpose get the amp up practice and stuff like that so you start seeing some of those relationships and those things build and they were actually very positive for our team because you see all those guys like being friends and stuff like that so o-line d-line friends and like hanging out you know so i wasn't as clicky as like positional groups i think there was definitely different friend groups but i don't think they were they were position specific Gotcha. Yeah, for us, that's what it was. But it was it was like clicks within uh, within position groups on yeah. the team. It was just the old linemen stuck together and all that. And I thought that was good. Was there negativity maybe between the clicks? But I think as student athletes, especially the older ones, the seniors, when I came back, we stuck together in spite of some of the negative culture that was around it. And I don't think that was necessarily our head coach's fault. I don't I don't want to name drop. It was other you know either position or, or um, physical therapist, like that, that was kind of the problem. And once you realize that they don't care, you turn to the people who do care, which are your teammates, mm -hmm. right? That they're the ones going through what you're going through. So that, 
that um that reset my mindset to them you know right. taking care of the younger guys and making sure the the older guys were yeah i mean that's pre- that's a pretty reflective uh, ideology there as a as a young as a young man at that point you're maybe like 20 21 years old trying to look out for younger folks and not just looking out for yourself um in some ways you are looking out for yourself and like thinking about the experiences you went through and then trying to help other people kind of navigate that. But I think as a, you know, coming from a coach's perspective, and we talked a lot about this last night and just those, I feel that personally that the coaches and the adults in the situation should have staken all that, you know, and they should recognize it and they should be able to cultivate this positive experience for everybody and not just, leave it up to chance because whether or not, you know, they got lucky potentially because they had good guys in the positions, right? So whether you build your culture or not, the culture is going to come out. Right. And luckily for them, they had good dudes like you on the team who helped breed a positive culture. But if they had a lot of negative dudes on the team, that culture could have been toxic. You know, you know what I'm saying? Easily. Yeah. yeah, so I think being fortunate in the way that that, you know, I guess maybe that's because you're at Harvard, you know, versus like, I don't know, some other school that doesn't get as high quality of student athletes and that might allow them some leeway in not having to be so proactive in building a positive culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Midwood too, like Midwood for the most part, the high school that Mark went to, I'd say for the most part, you get a lot of good kids there, you know, it, respective to maybe some of the other public schools in New York city, it's a selective admissions high school, which means they get to select at least 50 or more percent of the student athlete or students that come to the school because based off of grades and different things, I don't know if it's still like that, but that's how it was six years ago when I was there. So they get a chance to actually pick the students that come into the school. And it's one of a few schools where you, you have a selective admissions process and there's three high schools in New York city. We actually have to take an exam to get into so at those schools too, the culture of student that might come there is going to be very different than a culture of student who might go to a local neighborhood school. Well, it's interesting because they have both. They have selective programs right. and a small. That's what I'm saying, like 50, 50 uh, yeah. or 60, 40, yeah. 70, however they break it up. Midwood is a very unique school because some of the population is selective admission. Some of it is just the neighborhood kids who, you know, are of, of different potential or different backgrounds and things like that. So it's definitely a unique environment for sure. Yeah, different than Harvard. <laughs> yeah, I'd say different, a little different than Harvard. A little different. They might be the same size, though. How big is Harvard? I think around 4,000, 4, if yeah, I had to guess. which so Mark's just, high school was like 4,800 students. Yeah, no, it was wild. And small hallways. <laughs> yeah, small hallways. So Mark's high school was almost bigger than Harvard, so in terms of student population. So, so Harvard, uh, things turned out pretty well. I think Mark started. We went to go see him at a game, I believe. Yeah, Cornell game and we lost. Yeah, Cornell game, he lost. <laughs> but we saw we went to go see him. We hung out with a little for a little bit and uh, saw him play a, one of his games. He played pretty well. And yes. after Harvard, what what happens after you graduate? Football's over. You now you're you're seventy pounds lighter. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, but cooking Hollandaise, <laughs> Hollandaise song, and making us like like these uh, death cookies last night. In a good way, though. A thousand grams of sugar per cookie. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's when my focus really switched over to education, and that's when I realized how much of a commitment football really was. Right, because it's it's not just um, you know I'm putting six hours a day in, and then I have to do what the other kids did. I'm tired, so I'm not 
retaining what these other kids are retaining. So that's when I felt like I had to grind. And that's what I did. You know, in my semester off, I went to Columbia to work at a lab there. Like That's what I did in my junior spring or something like that. Mm. So I contacted that professor and he just happened to have a spot open and my grades weren't, weren't excellent, but they were good enough to get me into Columbia. And I took a, took a semester off in between just because I graduated a semester late. Uh, and I started that fall at Columbia with that professor, you know, two years went by, I got, um, funding for one whole year of, of school. So they gave me something like 25 K to go there. I just finished my master's degree this past spring. And then I'll be doing the PhD portion of it and they'll, they'll be paying me something like 40 K. I don't know, some, some small salary for New York, for New York, New York, stand, New York city standards. <laughs> yeah. And, so. uh, well, so what type of, you say you're in a lab. Yes, sir. So what are you doing in a lab? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been in a ton of labs in the past two years, but now I finally like picked my topic. All right. So it's, it's going to be carbon, um, di- dioxide sequestration. So we're taking carbon dioxide that's in the air. Now, so we have about 405 parts per million carbon dioxide. So really a tiny, tiny piece. <laughs> like if you think about it, for, for all the molecules in there, for you have a 400, 405 that are carbon dioxide, and then the rest are mostly nitrogen and, and oxygen and stuff right. like that. Okay, so we got to take those pieces of carbon dioxide out of the air because of climate change, you know, because of the consequences of what's going on when you release that much carbon dioxide into your air and having 405 uh, ppm per million is what it's called is detrimental for um or ozone and things like that uh yeah well it hit, it's the greenhouse effect it heats right. us up uh, yeah. not necessarily our ozone specifically but exactly it's all part of the climate change thing okay so how we do that is or or how we're trying to do it um what we take is alumina which is this kind of porous material you could just imagine these really tiny balls with um a bunch of holes in them okay uh what we're doing is we're impregnating an alkali sorbent on it. What alkali is, is like sodium. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't look at me. So like sodium oxide. You don't look like a Tory. So I'm kind of, I got you. With, I'm, I took chemistry in high school. Okay, good. good. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> we're, we're impregnating things that we know suck Will up. absorb carbon yeah, dioxide. Yeah, but when you, when you put them on these small porous uh, alumina balls, what happens is there's so much surface area that they could, they're more efficient at uh, absorbing it. So we take something like sodium oxide, or honestly, I don't know, maybe I, I signed something that says I can't say it, but we take something that takes it out of the air. You say maybe I signed something. <laughs> <laughs> like where I can't, I can't, you know, divulge what, yeah, what go, we're just, using. You can be really basic. I mean, the people aren't going to understand all the terminology you're saying. I'm anymore. Lost, so keep yeah. on. So well, you have something, another substance that takes it out of the, the balls. Yeah, exactly. And what we do is... We take the carbon dioxide out of the air, right? So it sticks on these little balls. Yeah. Then we purge it. So there's only nitrogen in this container that we got all this carbon dioxide in. Then we heat it up. And as we heat it up, we're running hydrogen through it. And what that does is it creates methane. And methane is natural gas, ultimately. Right. And so then you, re- so then you t- essentially you're turning carbon dioxide into methane and then exactly. releasing it back into the system. Um, so now or you're it, using it for something. Exa- so we're using it to sell it. The problem now um, is it costs money to just get carbon dioxide out. You know, heating it up costs money. Running air through your reactor costs sure. money. Like that's all electric energy that you're using. Yeah. And you have to make that economically viable. So then you're using that methane to then propel everything in full circle? No, you're, you're selling it. So you but are- Couldn't you essentially make a system that used the methane gas to then propel everything in? 
Well, how would the methane be propelled? You're saying well, it's already propelled? Well, you already have it in there. So then couldn't you use that to then, like if you're using natural gas, like a heater, mm-hmm. like in your house, mm-hmm. couldn't you use that methane gas to also use it to power the equipment that you're using? Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. So yeah. the, like create electrical energy to then power the fans that's pushing. Yes. It you could do that, but the, the problem, you could probably use some of the methane, but right, the problem it's not enough. is, yeah, well, the problem is you're still using electrical energy of some kind, mm-hmm. um, to either heat it up or, or like you, you're not going to create enough methane. Yeah. So there's just not enough that you're creating that would, that would make it worth it to use it in that sense. Cause you'd have to use some, some other sub sub source to do what you're, what you're trying to do. Exactly. And also then ultimately you're, you wouldn't be making, even if, if it broke even, you're not making money. So why would anyone build a plant to do this? Well, because it would be better for the environment. Oh, well, well, that's the thing. <laughs> no save the world. That. Save yeah. the world. But weren't you doing something else before that had something to do with like pharmaceutical stuff or drugs or? Well, yeah. When you first started going to a lab, weren't you doing something that was had to, had it like creating something that was like pharmaceutical related? Uh, yeah. So are, are you talking about Estee Lauder? Maybe. Right? Yeah. So the first professor I joined on with. He's actually a really famous dude. He he got nominated for the Nobel Prize like three, mm. three times. He's, he's insane. Kind of old now, 81 or something. So he worked a lot with uh, surfactants, which are it's an abbreviation for surface active agents. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they can basically surround either water or oil and make it miscible with the opposite. So, you know, oil and water don't mix. What you could do is you could put these surfactants to create what's called a micelle, like a structure around whatever oil. So then you can mix it with water? Mix it with water. That's actually, that's an emulsion. That's the same thing. That's the hollandaise sauce. Yeah. Same, same stuff. So this is also <laughs> like Mark science lab stuff is also the impetus for him getting into cooking. Yeah. Because he's interested in like the science of cooking and like how emulsification might work or how different things when you cook them. Like he was yelling at me because I don't brine my chicken yesterday because yeah, when, you, when you put salt <laughs> on something, it breaks down the protein and it, it allows things to, uh, the protein to one, get digested into your system better. And then as you're allowing the salt to release the water and it does something to the protein compounds inside the chicken and the steak yeah. and so on and so forth. Yeah. It denatures, it denatures, <laughs> so it, it uncoils the protein and then co- coalesces, coils it back. And when they coil it back, it just is a bigger structure, kind of like a micelle. It's, it's, it's usually, I guess, bigger. Like a micelle is, is a ball, whereas this would be maybe a, a surface thing. But yeah, and it contains water. So that's the same, it's the same kind of thing. The proteins form a, a thing around the water, structure around the water and maintain it in the same way that this does. And that's how you're- um, It also makes it more moist when you cook it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so now that the proteins are in that structure, they don't release the water as easily. Right. And that, salt and water and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but that's the same kind of science that goes into Estee Lauder's products, right? Like when when you put something on your skin, like makeup products. You mean like? Yeah, they yeah. do makeup and creams. Yeah. Also, I don't know. Makeup makeup might be different because they don't actually have to absorb into anything. But you, but the creams do. Right, right. they absorb into your skin. Yeah. There's some sort of oily substances there. Exactly. That might not be soluble into your skin where water might be. Exactly. See, I know what I'm talking about. I know some science. Yeah, there you go. Um, Mark has <laughs> said that I'm one of the smartest people he knows. So I, I did say that. Well, <laughs> the, the specific conversation was I don't get how someone like you wouldn't also go to like to a place like Harvard. A place like Harvard. Yeah. That was the comment. Yeah. Yeah. But you said what? It's just later in life you became this this guru. Uh, 
I think just like you had talked like experiences. I think the more experiences you have, I never read a book until I was like 24. Like I was a very, uh, very good test taker. Uh, I'm one of the type of people who people don't like in school because I can sit in class and never write notes and pay attention mm-hmm. and get a hundred on your test. Mm-hmm. So I never had the, I was never, I guess, challenged enough to have to learn anything or do anything more than just like sit in a class and listen. Mm-hmm. And I would sit there and doodle. I wouldn't take notes. I wouldn't read any of the chapters. I wouldn't do anything in any of the schooling environments that I had. And I would do really, very well. So I don't think it wasn't until I kind of became an adult and I was going into pathways of things that I didn't know a lot about where I had to self-educate is when I started reading a lot more and when I started learning a lot more about different things because I, I was, I was stagnant in some ways because I didn't, I wasn't going to classes anymore. You know, I was done with college, so to speak. So I didn't have anything, anyone to like shoot me information. So if you were to go back now, right, I'm, I'm sure there were some hurdles yeah. starting up. What would you tell your younger, younger self? Like how young? Like high school young? No, like 24. When you're first getting into it, what tips can you, this, this is for me because I, I need to know. Um, what tips could you give someone about how to learn? What's the, what's the most efficient way? Or- well, I think finding topics that you're into. I think that was the first thing. The first book I ever read was a book by Lou Holtz. And I think it was like called Winning Every Day or Winner Lou or something like that. Lou Holtz has a bunch of books. If you're not familiar with Lou Holtz, Lou Holtz was one of the famous football coaches at the University of Notre Dame. He became a ESPN spokesperson. Then he was at South Carolina. He also did a little bit in the NFL. And he has like a, you know, he's a, a kind of like world renowned, like coaching guru type guy. So I think the first coach I, I the, the first reason why I read it is because I was into coaching and I was trying to learn more about being a better coach. So it was a book that kind of like hit me in a different way because it was a topic that I was interested in. And I think when I was asked to read things in the past, they didn't relate or pertain to the things I was passionate about. So I had no, no, no vested interest in them. And as I've grown up more and more, like I, I choose books that will help me be better at the thing that I'm trying to be the best at. So I don't just read things. That's why I don't read fictional books. All of them are nonfiction. Like if you look on my desk, I have the Daily Stoic right now, which Tori, Tori I'm sure will open. There's a book called The Practice, which is about shipping creative work, the mindset and the process of the process by Seth Godin, who's a marketer. And I read a lot of like marketing books. I read over there, there's Muscles and Meridian. So that's about the body and movement. So all my life right now is dedicated to being the best at my craft. And two ways I have to do that is both be the most knowledgeable in the content that I'm delivering, whether that's performance or movement and health. And two, then how do I get it out to the people so they know that I do that? And how do I get it to them, you know, in a, in a positive way? So learning my content and learning ways and marketing and how to get it out to those people. So those are the two things that I'm super passionate about right now. So I find books and things that are related to my passions and dive headfirst into them. How do you differentiate then? Because I like cooking, right? Yeah. But that's not my job. I'll read a cooking book. How do you differentiate between what, what's a hobby and what you're passionate about as a career. Well, I think you can have a couple. And I think that's where people get, you know, if you're, if you're trying to make, I think it depends on if you're trying to make money off of it or not. Mm. So a hobby, yeah, cooking. I enjoy cooking. I like woodworking, but I'm not selling woodworking. Right. You know, I like those things. And I think being able to find, if you have time, I think that's the other part of it. If you have time to be able to pursue those other hobbies, 
that isn't detrimental to the thing that you're trying to be the best at, then, then go for it. You know, like dedicate some time to it. Like I love cooking, but I haven't looked at a new recipe in a long time. But like woodworking, like that's a fun thing for me. But then I've been realizing lately, Tori and I was just talking about this, that little odd jobs in my house, yeah, I can do it and I'm handy. But is it one, is it kind of quote unquote worth my time to dedicate a whole, a whole day, eight hours of work mm. to doing this job, which I can just hire somebody for probably ha like half of what I would pay myself. And then that eight hours takes me away from potentially doing something that I would be passionate right. about, you know? So why am I taking things away from the things that I want to do, you know, just because I can. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, so I guess trying to differentiate that, like, do you, do you really want to take away the time from doing the things you're passionate about or is, does it, or do they go together? You know, if they, if they are complementary, then, then it, all the better. Yeah. And I alluded to this yesterday when we were taking that walk, I think for science it's a little different because there are all these books for you guys. Ours are like textbooks, right? You know, it's hard to really dive in the same way. I think it's just a different, it's just a a different animal trying to be really good at science, you know? Well, I think it, a lot of sciences, I mean, a lot of stuff here too is in the gym is the lab. So that's something where you could do that every day and, and you know, you're getting better at the thing you want to get better. Like if, if you want to get your legs stronger, you do squats. Science it's it's harder to find a textbook or an article that, you know, will tell you what you want to know. Like, yeah, yeah that, that, that's the problem that I'm, I'm, well, I, you know, I don't mean the lab in terms of my own experiences. Like coaching other people mm -hmm. is an experiment in and of itself too. Oh, I see. Because you don't know, like if we go on Tori, like I might have a pretty good idea. Like if I watch her move, like what exercises might help her quote unquote fix a problem. Mm -hmm. But then you have to go and do it three, four, five, six, eight weeks to see if it worked. Mm -hmm. So that's all experimentation. Gotcha. So yeah, now did that single leg squat help her? In her, this, did this hip rotation help her not have back pain on her golf swing? Did her shoulder mobility help her increase her golf swing and increase the range on her golf swing? So all those different things, like it's, it's a trial and error, same, same way as it would be in a lab, except that there's in a lab, you, you can control a lot more variables. Yeah. Whereas That's here, fair. like I can't, I mean, I can tell her, but I can't control if she slept eight hours last night, which I would assume she probably didn't. I don't know. And I, and I can control, I, I can't control all the food that she eats on the, the water she drinks and so on and so forth. You know, I have, I can only control this little variable of her fitness. Mm -hmm. And even sometimes in that there's so much, so many variables that it's hard to predict a specific, specific, specific response. You know, if I'm not there holding her hand for every repetition and making sure she does it at the correct, you know, with the correct form. That's why sometimes the online coaching thing is a struggle because like I can send you a workout and you could do it, but are you doing it the same as if, if, as if I were there hmm. and as if like you're going to lunge or squat and I'm not there to co coach you up and keeping your knee in a specific position. Like you asked me about the, the lunge. Like if I'm not there to tell you like, yeah, this is what I want. This is how I want it to do. And then I watch you do it and make sure you're doing it correct. Then is that the same, you know, then the, hmm. and those responses and those experiments are a little harder to predict. Yeah, I wish you came down to New York for this reason. <laughs> you just know so much about that stuff; it's crazy. Like, I don't, I've never met anyone dedicated like this to the to their craft. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> there are people, there are people out there. Yeah, Gordon Ramsay, maybe that's what Gordon Ramsay <laughs> talking about poaching eggs and <laughs> eggs Benedict on the podcast. Was it a podcast? That was YouTube. 
It was just YouTube. I watch it every time. It's not like my first time making it. I know. Okay. Yeah, I watch it so, every time. So before Mark makes Eggs Benedict, every time he watches the same YouTube video from Gordon Ramsay to make sure that he's, he's following the steps and procedures for perfection. Yeah. And I must I'm say, done. it was pretty darn good, Eggs Benedict. Yeah, I, I saw it on your face. You're not you're not an expressive person with words, but sometimes I, I was I was I was genuinely <laughs> impressed. I was genuinely impressed. Although it did take three hours, but it didn't, no, I could have <laughs> done it in an hour. It, it was, was it was like hour a, maybe hour. two hours, maybe two hours from start to finish. It was like eight fifteen when I said it, and we sat down at like it took a lot of time, and it was kind of warm too. That's I got to get better at putting timing. On, yeah, yeah. So that's something I learned as a like you would talk about, we talked about like, Oh, where you were like work with a real chef or just as a short, as a cook at a restaurant, you have to time things up. So everything goes out at the same time. Yeah. Like you can't cook one thing and have it sit in the window for like 10 minutes while you're cooking the other thing. Everything's got to kind of time up. I'm, I'm happy you liked it. I was telling Tori earlier, it's like 80, 20 that the holidays works out. It's, it's uh, not a science for me yet. Yeah. That's why I got to keep watching that video. <laughs> yeah. Tori, you got any questions for him? Anything that in- tickled your pickle? <laughs> No, my brain is still spiraling from what you're doing. Oh, research-wise, yeah. I tried to write it all down. I spelled every word wrong. It's it's really well, exciting. essentially all of the, the simplest terms of it. He's trying to take carbon dioxide out of the air to make methane gas. I just yeah. think taking anything out of the air is a weird concept. Well, because you don't you see can't it. See it, yeah. Yeah, it, you, you got to get all these crazy sensors and monitors, and I, and I don't want to undersell it because I didn't make this. My my professor, Professor Ferrado, made it, and it's. It's really revolutionizing, um, you know, carbon capture because we have a ton of. Like, couldn't they do it? So here's another thing: couldn't they do that idea in a car, and then re-put yeah. the methane gas into the car to like fill the gas tank? Essentially, have a car run on natural gas, mm-hmm. take the car. But then I guess if they ran on methane, they wouldn't have as much car CO two emissions, would they? If if they ran on methane, no, yeah. it's, it's still it's still uh, a combustion reaction. So it still would have CO two emissions, yeah, which is fine because then you know in that world you could just keep going. You could just keep recycling it. Yeah, the, wouldn't that, that be a, like a really, uh, I guess, way to keep instead of because the the move the move right now is for electric cars. But like you said, no matter what, we're still using electric energy, which is coming from a coal source or an oil source somewhere. Yes. So we're, yes, we're making the cars less emissive, but we're making the power plant more emissive. Yes. So if, if you were to take a car and use this type of thing where the CO2 emissions that are coming out of the, the exhaust are then getting recycled through the car and then transported into methane gas and the battery would function through all that kind of stuff and replenish the car's gas or supply source, then that would feel like a, a really kind of revolutionary type thing. Yeah, the the problem with that, and ideally, I agree that would be yeah. what, what it is. Um, it, our cars don't run on natural gas right now. They are low hydrocarbon, like petroleum oil is low hydrocarbon right. um, oil that that is gasified right before it's ignited. That's true, but um, it's not methane gas, right. and and so our our engines. But let's say okay, well, couldn't then they could, make an yeah, engine yeah, that you could because yeah. that's what power plants are. But our material, one, you need to pump hydrogen through it. Uh, so, so like the cost and like the, the setup would be for each car, you would have to find a way to one mass produce that at a low cost Yeah. to put it in every car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to put like a hydrogen, a separate hydrogen tank now. And then you would also have to get it up to 300 degrees, which actually wouldn't be a problem. Because you're because, caught a car. Yeah. The, your yeah. car's already running it actually higher than that. So you would produce carbon monoxide. That's the 
And then the last problem is what we're using, one of the things we're using is a ruthenium, which I know we have a patent on this, so this I can talk about. We're using a ruthenium metal as our catalyst that creates this methane. And the ruthenium is crazy expensive, right. like, like even more than platinum. Like some sort of like, uh, what's the what's the African country in like Avengers? Wakanda. What, like, the, like the metal they have in Wakanda? Um, like, uh, yeah. It's the, what is that? What is that one called? Uh, it's the same thing as the, <laughs> the, the claws from, from that dude. Wolverine. Wolverine. Yeah. Ah, oh, damn. It's, it's not a it's real metal. It's no, not, it's real. not a real yeah, metal. It's fake, but, it's, <laughs> but the way they make it sound is like this 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 really rare rare thing Un, that costs unob, a bazillion. Unobtainium or yeah, something yeah. like that. Well there you go. It's unobtainable. <laughs> uh, yeah, unobtainable. That, I, I think it's something it's something <laughs> like a plant. Right. Uh, unobtainium. <laughs> yeah. Add it. Yeah. Oh yeah. But but yeah, no, it, it is there's also a limited supply is the other thing. For sure. But I agree with you. Re- you really hit on a point actually, and that's well, if we keep making this methane and selling it, then we're going to keep combusting it. So this doesn't solve anything. It is an interim. It's like a 20, 20 to 30 year uh, device, right? Technology. And then it's going to be taken over by taking CO2 and making it into something else or taking CO2 and putting it in your soda. And that being like that being the way that we do it. It's just about getting it. It's, it's so expensive. I think it's like $150 per, per ton of CO2 and it sells for... $50 per ton. So you're losing a hundred dollars every ton. Yeah. Yeah. So you need subsidies kind of like sure. what you were saying, but a hundred dollars a ton. I mean, there are gigatons, you know, that's what is it? Thousands of tons, billions. Of tons? I don't know. A, million, it's ten, a gig is a million, ten, right? 10 to the ninth. Yeah. So that's a billion. Yeah. And yeah, a kilo is 10 to the third. So it's a million. Yeah. It's a millions of tons in the atmosphere. Yeah. So it's a big loss that you're operating under. And Think about how much time it takes and all that. So yeah, it's an interim technology. There are a bunch of different ones that are trying to solve it the same way we are. But what my professor did is is actually particularly impressive. Also, quick another quick shout out. We have something called the catalytic converter in cars. Mm-hmm. My professor was part of the team who made a catalytic who, who made the catalytic converter. Yeah, yeah. So so I, so I had a I, before we leave. I, want, I had a personal training session the other day with a woman who is a former arts our teacher at a big university, a local university. And she was, she was explaining how that as an art person, and she tells people that she's also into fitness activities, how mind blowing that people think it is. And now you're hearing like a guy who played college football, who's doing like crazy sciencey type things. And I think a lot of people will like to put people into to boxes or, or places and think like, oh, you played football, so you must be like some dumb jock dude. Or you're into art, you must be, you know, non-athletic, and you must be this kind of like hipstery type person. And I think we put people into these categories as a society, and hopefully one of the things that we were able to uncover here is that it's not the way. You can be into a sport and also be into science and also be into cooking. You can be into a sport and also be an artist. You can be into, and I think you're starting to see it a little bit more on social media. Like some of the football guys will be like out playing their guitar, singing and dancing and some, so things like that. But I think it needs to become more relevant because we don't need to have just one thing and only in just one realm or one category. Like we can't only be into sports. We can also be into sports and science. We can be into sports and art. We can be into sports and cooking, sports and dancing, sports and you know, anything else that we want to be into, we don't have to put ourselves in these buckets where 
we are held to these classifications and you can be okay with that. And that's a perfectly great place to be. Right, Tor? Absolutely. Like Tori's a golfing artist. It's a weird combo. Weird combo. And she likes to run for 20 minutes with a water bottle in her hand. <laughs> I felt really attacked by that. She oh, felt attacked. So yesterday, just be, <laughs> I guess we'll leave with this one. So yesterday I, I was driving around and it's, you know, it's, it was like 75 and kind of sunny. Um, and there was a lot of folks running around in the area and they're running with like water bottles and they have like those water bottles that like attach to your hand. I don't have that. Like the, <laughs> yeah, with like the Velcro thing and they have a water bottle attached to your hand and they're taking a sip like every five steps. I'm like, how thirsty can you really be? <laughs> you need, like how, first of all, how long of a run are you going on? Most people are not going on like marathon runs where they're running for two hours straight. And even if you are, if you're that dehydrated, you might just need to go home and just drink some water for a little while before you go for your run. And then I put it on my Instagram and Tori hit me up and she was like, I go for, I have my watch. <laughs> oh, she doesn't anymore since yesterday. Because <laughs> she feels some type of way about it. It was really hot and humid. I would be afraid I was going to get dehydrated. You're not going to get dehydrated that fast. That's what I've been telling myself. So I stopped doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It takes a little bit of time. You're not even like, by the time you're done sweat, like you don't even, I don't even start sweating until like halfway through the run. So I'm already sweating. My Mark's, Mark's sweating just, just talking. <laughs> Thinking about the cookies he made last <laughs> night. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, hopefully we got something good out of that. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that we can dissect different things that happen here. We talked about college, choosing the college, what your experience might look like, and then kind of like what you do after college. Like a lot of times people go and play sports and then sports are such a, who they are. You know, they classify themselves as a football player, as a basketball player, and they 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 have it. They struggle after that to be in society as a quote unquote normal person. And I think that's why it's important to have other hobbies or other interests than just your sport. And I think once you you find those other things to do and also start maybe doing them as like a side hustle of learning, right? So yeah, I'm playing football, but maybe I'm kind of interested in this other thing. So let me start trying to like dabble in that thing. So then when football's over, I have something else to be passionate about, to be interested in and be able to do those sorts of things. So I think that's super important because that's the only way, really, you're going to do what, Tor? Fine. You're fine. All right. And Marky Mark, he doesn't really post anything on social media, but he's the Carbonara Cracker. Carbonara Cooker. Cooker? I thought it was Cracker. (laughs) (laughs) The Cooker? Yeah. Carbonara Cooker. Cooker on Instagram, but he doesn't ever post anything. So if you want to go check him out, you can follow him. <laughs> He'll post one thing every six months. And uh, yeah, so that's about right. it. Um, you might see on. him uh, winning a Nobel Prize in the next three to five years. But <laughs> 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 well, have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Peace. And thanks again for hanging out for another episode of the Prime Podcast. As usual, we would love to hear your feedback. And if you on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever that might be, leave us some reviews. Hit those five stars if you're enjoying the content. It helps us know that you're liking it and that we can continue to create more and find some other guests that might help you find your prime. Right? If you're going to follow us on Instagram or Mark and different people who we've had on, just look back through our Instagram feeds. We have some stuff on there that talks about the episodes Take a look back at some of the older episodes. We have some on nutrition. We have some on performance. We have an overrated, underrated we just did with Tyler Khaleesi. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. Like I said, we're on episode 37 or so. 
looking forward to getting another 15 in to have a full year of content week by week. And we may be making some changes to the podcast soon to give you more information and more frequently to continue to help you find your mind. Have a great day. I'm at my prime. Whoa. Said I'm at my prime.